Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. I'm Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are looking at Weird House Cinema's first Chinese selection, 1976's uh, Yugo Zi, or uh, as it's, it's known elsewhere, The Oily Maniac. Though I believe a more accurate translation of the original title would be The Oil Devil. Uh, Yu is oily or greasy, and uh, Gu Zi is devil, often used as a pejorative uh, in Mandarin. But uh, but yeah, this is uh, this is our, our first Chinese film that we're covering here. It is a Shaw Brothers picture, but it is a horror movie, not a kung fu movie. Though there's bound to be a little kung fu in there anyway. It's manufactured in a facility that also processes martial arts. <laughs> this one, it was very. So how did you come across this one? I think this one I got. I, I, I was turned on to by scrolling through the Amazon Prime films, you okay. know, um, which is Amazon Prime, which they're not paying for this uh, promotion, but they are generally my go to for streaming uh, weird and older movies because, you know, some of these other channels, they're just focused on the whatever the new thing is, you know, mm-hmm. um, I want like the old forgotten stuff some of the stuff that's like maybe public domain and has like three different listings within the app Mm -hmm. uh so i ran across this thumbnail for this like crazy looking um monster which we'll describe here in a bit and i with glowing eyes and it was called the oily maniac and i'm like okay i'm you've got my attention i'm in and I, i flagged it for later what an oily maniac it is this is a great monster now this movie has something I guess we should address right at the top, um, mm-hmm. uh, lest you, lest somebody be tempted to dive in and watch this themselves. Uh, I will say this movie has an excellent schlock monster uh, that that I'm excited to talk about and some Shaw Brothers energy, which is very good. But this is one where I personally don't think I can actually recommend anybody watch the movie in full because, and this is an experience that's worth talking about uh, on this show because it happens a good bit when you are digging through weird, lesser-known movies, especially genre films from the 70s and 80s. Rob, you know that feeling when you get excited to watch a movie because you see it's got some great, odd-looking monster or something like Mm -hmm. that, but then you get a ways into it and you realize, oh, no, it's one of those. Yeah. (laughs) And this movie was kind of like that for me. Uh, We're not going to dwell on this aspect of the film in the podcast, uh, but be warned that this film has various kinds of extreme sexual grossness and misogyny of different sorts that make it an unpleasant watch in many parts of the movie. So this might be one that if you're actually interested in checking it out, I might recommend seeking out a clip compilation of the monster scenes instead of watching the whole thing, because the monster scenes are an absolute delight. And I I wish the entire rest of the film could match them. It's such a shame when what could have otherwise been a purely delightful lipid monster romp is is ruined by that kind of stuff yeah yeah absolutely um because again the, the monster is great the this is a this is a revenge horror film mm-hmm. and so um the monster is the vehicle of vengeance so the the monster scenes in the film are, are wonderful they're just yeah, yeah like you said these are just the monster wailing on the various villains <laughs> and also some innocent bystanders in the film um but the the things that he's avenging are sometimes um, sexual assault, which are uh, depicted in the film. So mm-hmm. that's that's the main uh, yeah stumbling point to really fully enjoying this film and being able to to fully recommend it to everyone out there. 
But in some ways, that it is somewhat thematically appropriate because this movie, I'm to understand, sort of loosely ties into some folklore from Malaysia about a, about a, a folk monster belief. Yeah, it, it certainly does, and um, we'll 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 get back to that towards the end of the film. But yeah, it it it's tied into some folklore that is inherently linked to sexual violence. So. Um, you know, on one hand, I guess it's if you once you have all the cards on the table, it's perhaps unavoidable that those elements would be in a film like this. Yeah. But of course, the movie doesn't it's not like the movie is a serious exploration of those themes or something. It's more right. in the exploitation vein. It, uh, I mean, the, the, the really sad part of it is that it like it trivializes that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm playing armchair quarterback a bit here, but I, I feel like the film would have been great if they had just had him avenging just straight-up crimes, like wailing right. on some bank robbers, wailing on, uh, on uh, you know, some just uh, stereotypical gangsters and so forth. Mm. I, it really wasn't necessary, uh, but it's there in the film. Well, I like that he goes after corrupt lawyers, but yeah, so if, <laughs> if he had just like been the Batman, like a like a lipid-soaked Batman of corrupt lawyers who were, who were uh, helping the rich steal from the poor. Yeah. So that's basically the elevator pitch here. When corruption and violence run rampant in late 1970s Malaysia, one man um, sees no alternative but to turn to black magic and become a rampaging, oily monster. Maybe we should hit that trailer audio. Let's listen to it. All right, so as you might have guessed from that trailer audio, this is a film that is uh, entirely in Mandarin, and I do not believe a dubbed version exists. Maybe it does, but I I didn't run across it. A lot of those Shaw Brothers films were dubbed into English and released uh, uh, internationally, but I I didn't run across this one. Certainly the copy that you'll find streaming everywhere and uh, on DVD and Blu-ray, it seems to be in Mandarin with subtitles, which um, is is an interesting proposition for some of the films we watch here, because a lot of the films that we watch for Weird House, you you can sort of think about other things. You can sort of multitask. But I don't know. When I'm watching a film with, with subtitles, I do have to focus more on it because I need to read as well as watch. Um, uh, so uh, uh, that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, I didn't even think about doing any kind of like prime watch party for this one uh, because everybody needs to be reading the text on the screen, not texting other people. Now, I would say the biggest thing as far as connections go here is that this is a Shaw Brothers film, and and uh, the Shaw Brothers studio, of course, is very historically important. Yeah, I, I have to say I love it when, when you watch a Shaw Brothers film and you're hit with that logo. They have a tremendous yes. logo. It's like yes. this glittering rainbow mirror backdrop, and there's the SB on the shield. Uh, with the, it's kind of like a dimpled frosted glass. I don't know exactly yeah. what you call that. And then, yeah, the the various different colors behind it. It really is a gorgeous title card. Yeah, it's what I, I get excited about a nice title card, and, and this one definitely does it for me. So yeah, Shaw Brothers Studio Film. This studio operated um, in one name or another from 1925 through 2011. It was one of it was the largest film production company in Hong Kong, making it a significant, uh, giving it a significant impact not only on Chinese cinema but international cinema as well. The Shaws were Chinese film entrepreneurs. Three of the four Shaw brothers, Runji, Runmi, and Rundi, founded a film distribution company in 1925, operating out of Shanghai and Singapore. And then Runmi and their youngest brother, Run Run, 
Shah, operated the Singapore base, which would then become the Shah Organization before taking over the Hong Kong-based sister company, Shah and Sons Limited. And then in 1958, a new company, Shaw Brothers, was born. Now, Run Me lived 1901 through 1985, and Run Run Shaw lived 1907 through 2014. And the Shaw Brothers studio put out uh, different kinds of films. I, I would say um, the ones that I'm most familiar with tend to be like crime thrillers and kung fu movies, but there are yeah. different kinds they did as well, right? Yeah, and this is a, a prime example because this is this is not a martial arts film, though there's a little bit of kicking in there. It's not a crime film, though there's certainly crime in there. This is primarily a horror film, and yeah. even specifically, and we'll get into the the, the 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 ins and outs of this later. It is a black magic horror film. Um, That's so sort it, of like a type of movie. It's like a genre yeah. in Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, yeah, apparently so. So Run Run Shaw has the sole production credit on The Oily Maniac, one of 364 production credits listed on IMDb, including such notable films as The 36th Chamber of Shaolin from 78, which is uh, heavily sampled in the first Wu-Tang Clan album, which I imagine a lot of you are familiar with. And he shares co-executive producer credits on a, on a little 1982 film that some of you may have heard of called Blade Runner. I believe that was part of a last-minute funding shift that required them to reach out to other investors. And so Shaw kicked in $7.5 million and took international distribution rights for Blade Runner. Oh, I bet that panned out nicely. Yeah, one would think. One would think. Actually, I don't know. I, I have a question. So Blade Runner is a critical hit. Was it a, was it a commercial success or did it, did it bomb? I don't know. That's, that's a great question. Um, uh, it's one of those films that has – that I always just assumed that it was – you know, critical and commercial success, mm. but uh, but certainly it was more of a critical and cult hit uh, in, in in the way that I interact with it. I I, I don't think I've ever looked up the numbers on Blade Runner. Why do you Wait, have now, them in front of you? No, now I got to take a step even further back. I don't even know if it was a critical success upon initial release. Was, did that oh, change yeah? over time? Let's see here. Well, the critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes reads, Misunderstood when it first hit theaters. The influence of go. Ridley Scott's mysterious neo-noir Blade Runner has deepened with time. That sounds to me like uh, like they're trying to summarize that, that exact dynamic of people not really getting it at first. So who knows? Uh, Run Run Shaw might have uh, bought into a limb in there, at least initially. <laughs> well, let's talk about the director of, of this film. Ming Hua Ho, uh, who lived 1923 through 2009, directed 57 films, mostly in the 60s and 70s, including the movie The Flying Guillotine from 75. Now, that's not to be confused with Master of the Flying Guillotine, which came out in 76. Um, so Ho directed the film that seemed to have at least kicked off a lot of the bizarre weapons popularity, though I'm not sure his film originated the, the use of the weapon on screen either, because I think there's also a 1973 non-Shaw Brothers film that featured that flying guillotine weapon, that sort of strange basket hat contraption on a chain that a martial arts character will throw. Uh, it'll go over the individual's head, slice the head off, and then you can retrieve it. I've actually never seen the original flying guillotine movie. I've only seen Master of. Um yeah, I I watched one of them. I think no, I think I watched both of them. So I think I've seen the Flying Guillotine, but I I don't remember. I get the two confused. Like one of them is like the origin story of the Flying Guillotine, and the other one's like an international street fighter like tournament. 
Yes, so that's Master of the Flying Guillotine. It's a Street okay. Fighter tournament. Uh, it's the the hero of the movie is the one armed boxer, and the Master of the Flying Guillotine is the villain. And he, I don't remember exactly what the plot is, but he's trying to, I don't know, do something bad with the tournament. And our hero has to fend off not only the Master of the Flying Guillotine himself, but uh, various fighters from other countries around the world as well. Now, the screenwriter on this one is is uh, mildly interesting as well. It's this guy uh, who wrote it as Sai Lan, but his name was Lam Chua. And he's uh, this is one of only two screenwriting credits for this guy. But he went on to be a producer and produced some Jackie Chan films, uh, such as 1997's Mr. Nice Guy and 1986's Armor of God. Mm-hmm. And in 1991, he was one of the producers on legendary martial arts gore picture Ricky O, the story of Ricky. Ah, now that's another movie that sort of combines elements of different genres in the same way this movie does, in the, in the same way that this is uh, horror, but also a little bit martial arts and a little bit like, uh, I don't know, 70s exploitation sleaze. Mm-hmm. Um, Ricky O, is, it's like got the gore of a horror movie, but it's a martial arts movie. Yeah, it is the bloodiest, goriest uh, martial arts movie you could ask for. With amazing gore effects that are also, at least when I watch it, and it's been a while since I've watched it, that, but I found it just so over the top that it wasn't, it, it doesn't make you cringe or, you know, it, it doesn't affect you in the way that violence in some films do because it's just so ridiculously um, bloody and squishy. It's like it's really itchy and scratchy level of violence yes. in that film. Yes. Yeah, that's a very good comparison. Yeah, Riccio, it's itchy and scratchy live action. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well let's talk about our, our our lead in the Oily Maniac that is Danny Lee playing Shen Yan and uh, yeah, he was a, he's a Hong Kong actor, film producer, screenwriter, director who apparently made it kind of a career playing, you know, like police officer type characters. Mm-hmm. I think that was like a common role for him. He's in The Killer. Uh, I don't Is know he? if he's okay. in other John Woo movies, but uh, he's definitely in The Killer. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he has 12 directing credits. Uh, yeah, and in this he plays Shinyan, our hero, anti-hero, who becomes the titular oily maniac. And he does a pretty solid job here with kind of, there's kind of a, a Dr. Jekyll sort of intensity to him. You know, he's he's a tormented character. First, he's tormented by the fact that he... Um, uh, he is uh, his handicap. What he he, uh, he suffered from illness earlier in life. The, the character did. Uh, is it supposed to be um, polio? Yeah, he he uses crutches, uh, and I think it's implied that it's from a childhood polio infection. Okay, so he he has he has a lot of emotions about this, and then as a number of hardships uh, occur uh, in his life, which we'll get into, becomes even more tormented by all of this, and then of course he learns the secret of the oily maniac, which yeah brings in this Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde quality to everything, which essentially leads him on a disastrous road to doom. I really like the guy who plays Uncle Ba, who sort of sets the motion of the film in action. He's the person who introduces black magic into the film. Yeah, this guy really jumped out at me as well. This uh, character is played by Feng Ku. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he's an interesting guy. He was born in 1930 and is apparently still out there acting. He had a film come out in 2020. He's known for such movies as Tiger Killer, Death Kick, uh, The Five Deadly Venoms. And he seems to have played a lot of commanders, heavies, and wizards in his career. Mm. And, I, yeah, I thought he had a nice haunting scene in this film as he, as a condemned prisoner, relates the secrets of the oil to Shen Yan. 
But the, the rest of the cast is full of people who were also just longtime players in Hong Kong cinema, including some other actors that went on to have successful directing careers, such as Corey uh, uh, Yoon, who plays a very bit part in this as a road worker who's scared away by the monsters. But uh, Yoon uh, co-directed The Transporter for Western audiences, as well as 2006's DOA, Dead or Alive, the video game movie. Um, but he also did some really big Chinese films. In fact, as luck would have it, we had a listener named William write in on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind dis- uh, discussion module on Facebook and say, quote, I have a good suggestion for a uh, Hiroki's Sonata film. I think it's the best martial arts film of its time, and there isn't a close second, honestly. Incredibly underrated and unknown for how good it is. It is streaming on multiple free sources now. And he's talking about um, Ninja in the Dragon's Den, uh, which is a 1982 film directed by Corey Yoon. No, I've never seen it. No, I mean either, but it, it sounds interesting. But yeah, so even in just the backgrounds, <laughs> in the bit players in this, you have some people who went on to, to have quite a career. Okay, well, should we get into an overview of at least some of what happens in the film? Yes, Okay, well, the first thing we see in this movie is that there, there's an opening text, and it, it's in translation. The subtitles in the version I saw said that uh, the text reads, This story is a rewrite of a Nanyang tall tale. It bears the moral that justice does prevail. I'm not sure if it bears that moral. but mm-hmm. uh, And then it says, The film is extensively shot in Malaysia, and our story begins in a coconut oil garden. And then all the while in the background, while this text is on the screen, there is boiling slime and tortured screaming. <laughs> yeah, so I, I didn't know what to make of this text at first because I thought, well, maybe they're just doing a... Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, or um, Fargo type thing where right. they're just Based trying to add authenticity story, yeah. to it. Um, but but it turns out like this is basically true. And uh, interestingly enough, it does remind me of the stories in Pusong Ling, Strange Stories from a Chinese Studio, because it, a lot of those stories open up with just like a, a kind of a disclaimer like this saying, this is a true story that uh, such and such person told me. Um, so uh, possible connection there to um, the, the tradition of, of telling strange stories in Chinese culture. Well, like several moments in this movie, there is some hilariously sudden cutting to happy music. So mm-hmm. you get the opening text and the screaming and the boiling oil and then ah, in the background and then immediately cut to uh, how the best I could describe it is like it's mid-century cruising music. It's the soundtrack <laughs> to a scene of driving along the Pacific Coast Highway in an early 60s film. Yeah, we go from this monstrous boiling scene, which I guess is kind of like saying, hey, we better show them the monster early. It's going to be 17 minutes before they see anything else like this. Uh-huh. And then we cut to what so, so the, those early stages of the film. It looks like uh, a 1970s tourist uh, tourist video, you know, promotional video for mm-hmm. Malaysia. You're just like, oh, this place looks great. Yeah. Uh, so so we go to this coconut farm. And actually, uh, one of the most interesting things I thought of the movie was right at the very beginning when it shows – coconut farm workers making the use of tree-climbing monkeys to help them with the harvest of coconuts. Yeah, that, that was cool. 
Is that a real thing? I assume that so. That is, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I, I know I've read about it before, yeah. I, I had no idea. Well, th- that was interesting to me. Uh, but so the conflict starts almost immediately. We we meet some characters. We meet Xin Yuan, uh, played by Danny Lee. Who yeah, who he he's this thoughtful, sensitive young lawyer. And then uh, we meet uh, Cheng Yue, and we meet uh, Lin Yang Ba. And again, Ba is uh, Danny Lee's uncle, who who works here at the Coconut Oil Garden. And immediately there's this tense legal dispute. I think the family that owns the coconut oil garden is in debt to some bad dudes, and the bad dudes have come to collect, and a fight breaks out when they say they they can't pay the debt they owe. Yeah, and this is one of the when the fights break out in this movie, you definitely see the um, the the Hong Kong action cinema come out. Like every every male character in this film has like a, at least a sixteen dexterity because when they pop into action, uh, yeah, you, uh, it's it's pretty intense. Yeah. So Uncle Bach gets dragged into the fight, and he kills one of the goons from the bad guys in self defense. And then uh, we, we see him getting captured by the police. For some reason, he does not seem to be able to deploy a self-defense explanation to this crime. I, it, it seems like they were sort of trying to explain that in the movie, but I think it went over my head. Something yeah. about how, like, um, Danny Lee couldn't be a witness at the trial for some reason. Yeah, I, I missed that as well. It just seems like it's on one second he's being arrested and the next it's like he's on death row. Yeah, it's just immediately he's about to be executed. And so uh, Xin Yuan is visiting Uncle Ba in prison and it's like their last meeting before uh, the uncle's going to go off to get executed. And it, how to describe this scene? There, There is a scene involving a magical back tattoo where uh, Uncle Ba says, you know, before I go, I have to explain something to you. And he says, your father was a shaman, a sort of exorcist. He got an incurable disease, and so he gave me the spell before he passed away. He copied it down for me. Hurry up, write it down. But the place where he copied it down was apparently a tattoo on his brother's back. And so we have a back tracing scene. Yes. I don't know why he put tattooed it. Like, couldn't he have? Well, a lot of a lot of questions come up regarding that as a way to pass it on. Because then, how do you read it? You got to have a mirror. You got to mm. have two mirrors or a friend to trace it for you. Maybe it's literally to make it more difficult to use. Because we know that this magic is dangerous. With great power comes great yes. responsibility here. Uh, because uh, because Uncle Ba tells Danny Lee, he says, "Please remember one thing." This can only be used to help the less fortunate. You can't use it with a wrong intent or you'll die. You'll die in a very, very bad way. And, of course, with the caveat that this is all in the English subtitles, it, something may be getting lost there. Yeah, I, I can't help but wonder if that the actual lines in Mandarin are, relate more to like a shameful death or, you know, dishonor or something because cause that's that's ultimately the direction things go in. And yeah, I love this setup. This is a great setup for the black magic to come and it, uh, you know, it, ultimately it deserves a better movie. Yes. Uh, so so Danny Lee takes this information back home. He's copied out the spell from from his uncle's back. And he goes home. He gets frustrated. Uh, I think he 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 feels like he is uh, he he is sort of a a, a un, he's got unrequited love for Yue, mm-hmm. and he gets frustrated in his house, and then just gets out a pickaxe, digs a hole in the floor in the middle of his house, takes his shirt off, starts chanting "Give me peace and power." 
and then uh, crude oil or some kind of gray sudsy dishwater type liquid. It bubbles up from the ground. This is the one of many sequences in the film that just have like gray sudsy oil coming up out of something. And uh, and it covers him, and then we get the transformation for the first monster sequence. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now I have to drive home. Now he he digs that hole, and then he climbs into the hole. Yes. And then it fills up with the oily mess. And uh, I, I I think this is very fitting because on one hand, you have like the earthly origins of oil. It's like he's communing with, with spirits of the ground. And then also he is about to embark on the um, – the profession of revenge, the, you know, and so he's kind of digging his own grave here to begin, which is a fitting symbol for what he's about to to try and achieve. Right. So so we get a monster transformation. It is not quite uh, American Werewolf in London level. It, it, he's just sort of suddenly this monster. Mm-hmm. And how to describe the creature? It is basically human shaped, but very bulky, like a person in a firefighter's suit. Mm hmm. And the exterior texture of his body is kind of uh, it's uh, so it's oily and it's wrinkly and it's wet and it's it looks like a uh, sort of a black garbage bag covered in slime and water. Yeah, but 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 well done for the most part. I mean, so it depends how it's shot. Like some. Sometimes it looks better than other times in the mm-hmm. film, but for the most part, it's an impressive monster suit um, with with a, yeah, a lot of bizarre details. Well, I think we should be clear. It, impressive in the schlock sense and that it's yes. fun to look at. It's not uh, – I, I would not say this is an especially beautifully designed suit, but yes, it, it for as for like schlock monster, it's up there. Yeah, there's an element – there's kind of a, a sense of swamp thing to it. Yeah, uh, there's a there's kind of a, a sense of yeah, just like oily mess golem to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, if this thing came running running at me, I'd be terrified. So it's got glowing fossilized amber for eyes. I'm, they don't say that. That's what it looks like. This this kind of yellow glassy or plasticky material that with mm-hmm. lights behind it. Uh, you kind of get the feeling that if you leaned in close and looked in the eyes, you might see a mosquito like in Mr. Hammond's cane. And mm-hmm. then it's got a toothy red mouth that is permanently cocked up to one side as if smirking. Yeah, yeah. And then the weirdest feature, uh, I don't think they ever explained this in the movie, or if they did, I missed it. There, it, it has an exposed red beating heart that pokes out from the rest of the oily exterior. Uh, it looks like a sort of red heart that's beating but trapped behind plastic. Yeah, it looks it looks really cool, and it 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 looks like such a bullseye that you assume that it's going to somehow factor into the plot or into the way that the monster eventually dies. Right, but it doesn't. Stay through just, the heart or something. Yeah, yeah, but it, it doesn't. It just looks cool. What would be what would be the best way? So I really feel like they could have played with better ways to defeat the oil monster in this movie, like using soap or something. Yeah, yeah, they could have, they could have been a little more yeah chemically aware, I guess. Uh, as, as it turns out, they just stick with fire. Yeah. <laughs> Petroleum-consuming microbes. That would be like a modern oh, uh, version, I guess. That would be good. Uh, but so everything else on his exterior, yeah, it's just these oily, you know, black garbage bag mud tentacles. And and he screams with rage. The monster often screams with rage. Yeah, he has, there's some sort of like reverb added to the rage scream, too, that makes it feel like nice and otherworldly. Because, again, he's not a he's not a product of mad science. He's a product of black magic. Right. And so from here on out, the film is mostly greasy violence. The the oil monster hunts and pummels 
and kills people. Uh, I think we're to understand that most of the people he kills are are like bad dudes who deserve it. But then the the sort of like uh, the bad sexual politics come through. Like one of the people he attacks is a. Uh, a woman who is portrayed as like a scheming woman who falsely accuses men of sexual assault. Right. And then there's another scene where he wreaks uh, vengeance on a um, a crooked plastic surgeon. But then there's a, a patient in the room when he goes on his rampage and he just like throws her up against the wall, too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like he's very indiscriminate in his uh, vengeance and rage here. Sometimes the first thing he'll do when he comes into a room full of people to exact vengeance is just smash all the glass items. <laughs> in yes. The room, yeah. Yeah. Which is a solid monster costume move. I, I feel like um, Zat from the Bloodwaters of Dr. Z or Zat did much the same thing. And it was a very similar costume in some ways. Bulky probably very difficult to see out of <laughs> yeah um and, and we should mention that one of my fa- i would say actually my single favorite thing about this movie is when the oil monster is is chasing after someone because we get an animated oil slick that slithers mm-hmm. along the floor while the jaws music plays just straight up the jaws music yeah he melts down into a, a gleaming puddle that's obviously animated and then zooms after i mean zooms like he's yeah. able to chase a speeding automobile yeah um, and then the green, so other general characteristics of the, uh, of the lipid monster attacks, the grease man sometimes runs flailing his arms in a helicopter pattern, which yep. doesn't make him look as menacing as I think it's supposed to. Yeah. Well, I, I was menaced, but, uh, <laughs> okay. but yeah, it is kind of cartoonish. Uh, he's also a really good jumper. Let's not yes. forget that. Well, he has he has a special kind of superpower, which is reverse footage leaping abilities. <laughs> so sometimes even as a dummy, there are great scenes where he jumps up, you know, three stories at once and looks oddly kind of like flaccid and inanimate. And I think it's just because they're like dropping a stuffed suit and then reversing the footage. Yeah. Very good. Now, but a lot of his particular moves during it, he has the helicopter spin. Generally, he's doing what I think of as just sort of pro wrestling clubbering on folks. Yes. Like he's just he's just wailing on them with his arms. Sometimes he looks like he's even doing like a double axe handle thing. He's stomping. He'll stomp people in the ribs. He'll apply uh, an oily choke. Uh, but uh, with one notable exception, those are his keys, his key um, uh, moves that he pulls out in his fights. Yeah. And so there is the plot of the movie includes that there's like this furor generated about the oily maniac attacks. Like there is a scene where he's supposedly going around punishing evildoers. There's one scene where he uh, he kills a rapist and then it, it cuts to newspaper headlines Mm-hmm. And it says, uh, Tin Kin Young was killed by the oily maniac. That's the translation we get of the newspaper headline. And then another one says, the oil maniac slays Tin Kin Young. And again, I'm wondering if something is is lost in translation, because that would imply that the reader already knows who the culprit in, uh, who the culprit is by name and would know who or what the oil maniac is. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I'm... On one hand, I can imagine that the oily maniac, it might be alluding, like his name being in the headlines might be alluding to the fact that, okay, this is an established bit of folklore. And also, there's kind of a cryptid aspect to this as well in real life uh, that occasionally you'll see headlines. I think in 2012, there it even made headlines internationally uh, when there was a an alleged sighting of an oil man uh, somewhere in uh, Malaysia or Singapore. I can't remember which. Oh, okay, so th- this could be tying into the actual folklore basis of of the premise of this film. 
Right. But if but certainly for most uh, you know Western viewers, if you're watching this, that's going to be lost on you. There is so, but anyway, so the police are investigating the oil maniac attacks. There, there's one part I really liked where a detective is like, "I deduce that the that the culprit covers himself in oil to get away faster." <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line. I don't know if he's thought that through. I don't know how well that would work. Oh, now speaking of covering in oil, though, one of the the cool things is that when when Danny Lee uh, 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 initially transforms into the oil monster, or if if you want to call him something uh, like hipper, I would say you could refer to him as the crude dude. Uh, Ooh, when, yeah. when he makes this initial transformation, there's the whole ritual in the pit. But later, apparently all he has to do is just get some oil on him mm-hmm. in order to uh, transform. Like there's a scene at a roadside um, construction uh, site where there's just an open barrel of like seemingly boiling oil. And he just goes up and starts putting it on himself and then jumps in. Yeah, there's another one where he just walks up to a gas station, takes out the diesel pump, sprays it all <laughs> over himself and transforms. And the stuff that comes out of the diesel pump is it's I guess supposed to be crude oil. It's like this dark liquid, but again it's kind of gray and sudsy like like old dishwater. Mm-hmm. Uh and I just don't think that's what diesel fuel looks like. <laughs> So one scene in this movie that is not a monster attack scene and is also not revolting but is just fun is the curry disappointment scene. Can you explain this? Okay, so there are this is not really a movie for great female characters, but No. He essentially has two potential love interests. Uh one is the um uh you know the 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 the, the poor woman who's um it was her father, right? Or uh that that uh, that died, right? That was executed. No. I'm trying to remember what her relationship is to any other character in the film. I think she works with Danny at the she law office. She just works with him, doesn't okay. she? No, no, no. There's the law. There's basically there's work love interest and then there's uh the other love interest. There's UA and um Yeah. So there's oh. UA and then there's work lady. Okay. Okay. So he's he's totally smitten with UA. And um and, but he's he he keeps getting help from uh, this lady at work. He she he comes over to her apartment, and of course he's just sort of saying, "Oh, everything's the worst. You know, I'm having all these tr- problems." And she's like, uh, "Well, do you do you like curry?" And he's like, "Oh, I love curry, but I only love her curry. Anything else, ugh, just disgusts me." And then we sort of pan out, and she's like, "But I made curry." And there's like this yeah. full table set with this luscious looking curry dish, and <laughs> the great. passion in this scene, the remorse after he. After he disappoints her about the curry, that plays remorse music. It's like the remorse <laughs> theme from Oily Maniac. Yeah, so the, the curry disappointment scene is great. I, I recommend it. Um, another interesting scene that occurs that doesn't involve uh, monsters uh, or anything is the. Sp- I was impressed by the speed with which the police tap all the office phones. And I couldn't help but wonder, okay, is this just movie logic or is this an actual, like, accurate representation of phone tapping by law enforcement in Malaysia or Hong Kong at the time? I'm not sure. Yeah, I wonder. Well, anyway, it all builds up to a final confrontation between the oily maniac and and the the many forces of evil and corruption in this movie, which are a loosely affiliated group of, of, I don't know, criminals and gangsters. Yeah, so it's a massive battle with like all the oily special effects they can muster, and uh, it's pretty fabulous. Yeah, again, if you're if you're tempted to see part of this movie, it might be, and you you just want to check out one scene, it might be best to just skip skip to the end and watch this ending battle scene. Though I will say there is an excellent kill in the film 
before that where the evil lawyer and his mistress are you know have sped away and they've gone to like a makeout place and they're like going to make out in the car yeah and then the oily maniac attacks and he it, it's a great scene where he starts dripping down all the windows you know it's very blob-esque mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. and then suddenly he's in the back seat and it, then he he grabs the lawyer's head and crushes it like a coconut and we don't see much of it which actually kind of helps make it work more but yeah there is a head burst scene and that's probably the most violent uh physically violent thing we see the monster do to anybody yeah otherwise it's mostly just beatdowns it's yeah, like it's traditional beatdowns martial arts film style style beatdowns mhm Though the oil monster does have tricks other than just, like, kicking and punching. We've already said he's got the reverse footage jump. But he also has a trick he reveals, I think, only in that final battle, which is mm-hmm. that he can spray oil out of his mouth. And yes. this is kind of like the the James Bond car trick where it shoots out the oil slick so the other car's behind skid all over the place. But in this case, he, he just vomits oil all over the faces of his attackers. Yeah, also an R2-D2 trick, by the way. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. But he's got but he's got uh, powers that make him very too difficult to defeat. So the enemies hack him with uh, with machetes and stuff or swords and like they can lop his arm off, but then it just regenerates because he's got the oil magic. Right, and there are a couple of times where they shoot him full of bullets and then he'll melt down into a puddle and then he'll like regenerate back up to full strength. They're really proud of that effect because yeah, they, they yeah. roll it out about twice. Yeah, uh, but in the end, the oily maniac is defeated by, who would have thunk it, fire. Yeah, because he goes too far. Like, he has the police, and he's about to crush their heads in a double headlock sort of situation. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, you you have to stop. You have to leave them alone. Uh, he won't do it. So he gets torched. Yep. And uh, and then we see his, like, body on the ground burning up, and it sort of it burns like old newspaper. And then... Once again, there is a really sudden and funny music transition where the oily maniac is blown away like burned newspaper and then soft, happy music just kicks right in. Yeah, uh, I do like the the old school monster movie ending of the monster is dead. The end. There's no yeah, there's no, no amount of clean at up. all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do want to get get back to the the Malaysian um, roots here, the the, the folkloric roots, uh, because indeed there is a creature in Malaysian folklore known as the Orang Minyak or Oily Man, and according to the University of Southern California Digital Folklore Archives, the you know, the Oily Man is a creature of Malaysian folklore with appearances in Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore, and the main constant in the folk tradition is that we have an oily humanoid that assaults women at night, especially virgins. And the the origins vary quite a bit. Sometimes it's said to be just a dark creature of the spirit world. Other times he's a human, a, quote, spurned lover that has powers due to his solicitation of either a bomo, a Malaysian witch doctor, or a contract with a creature from the spiritual world. So this makes it seem like maybe a lot of the the creepy sexual associations of the oily maniac are not just in the movie, but they're also in the the folk tales that the movie is based on. Yes, it would seem to be the case. Like it is a it is a like a, a folkloric creature. Sometimes again, a cryptid. Uh, even it's this this dark oily creature that creeps around in the night and attacks women. Uh, hard to see in the dark. Slippery if you grab him. Uh, also, in some versions, apparently he likes to steal things. Uh, but I didn't find a lot of details on that. 
Uh, the other interesting thing is that this was not the first Oily Maniac film or Oil Man film. There was a series of these that were produced in Singapore in the 50s and 60s, such as Curse of the Oily Man in 56 and The Oily Man in 58. So it was already an established movie monster before the Shaw Brothers came around and gave it not just an oily, naked human appearance, but this awesome Swamp Thing-esque treatment. And apparently, yeah, there are still supernatural sightings of the Orang Minyak in contemporary Malaysia. Uh, I ran across a 2012 IO9 article about it, and there was even a live science article by Benjamin Radford about it, who made a special made special mention of cryptid enthusiasts getting in on the oily uh, man uh, legend and saying, "Well, we think it might be a Sasquatch of some sort." Oh yeah, the old uh, <laughs> the old hidden primate theory. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any reality to that. Um, my, my opinion on the the, the the possible presence of of oily primates. I would agree, and and I think it's also interesting that you see this with some other types of cryptid legends, a a connection between certain types of alleged cryptid sightings and taboo fixations, uh, people who are having kind of scary thoughts at the at the boundaries of sex and violence. Yeah. Now, um, I want to get into the this film's place in Hong Kong cinema for a few minutes as well. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's important to note yeah, that this is, a again, a black magic film, a Hong Kong black magic film. And granted, black magic has long been part of Chinese myths and legends. But then uh, we see this film as part of a, a, like a, a shift in how it's treated uh, cinematically. Apparently, according to James Mudge of EasternKicks.com, in, uh, in a, an article titled Black Magic and Sleazy Spells, the Shaw Brothers Horror Films. The horror output of the Shaw's, Shaw Brothers between the late 50s and the mid-80s was hugely influential on Hong Kong horror cinema. And it wouldn't be till Sammo Hung's Spooky Encounters films of the 1980s that the style took a different turn. But even then, Mudge writes, Shaw-inspired sleazy sorcery and grotesque black magic played a major role in the 1990s boom in what are uh, referred to as Category 3 rated genre cinema. Category 3 is like the, was the extreme exploitation rating. Um, so, uh, so again, this was part of a, a movement of films that, uh, that had a real impact. And uh, of The Oily Maniac in particular, Mudge writes, quote, the film is a wacky affair, dripping with sleaze and jarring shifts of tone. And though it makes little sense and boasts some hilariously cheap special effects, it has become a firm favorite of trash cinema fans. And then I was—I also found an article by um, this was by Danny Chan Wing Kit from 2019, published in Hong Kong Studies, titled "Spectralizing Southeast Asia: Hong Kong Cinema of Black Magic." And in this, Wing Kit makes an interesting point about Oily Maniac's place in the history of Hong Kong black magic films. Films such as this and 75's Black Magic and 76's uh, Black Magic Part 2, they dealt with black magic beyond the limits of Hong Kong and modern urban living. Quote, a haunted community kept at bay from Hong Kong. But later films, they write, cross, cross the boundary, bringing the black magic into the city. And in this Wing Ken writes, we see an example of cultural bias and prejudice towards Southeast Asian cultures. And this becomes even more key during the 80s as Hong Kong searches for its place in the world. Quote, in Hong Kong's black magic cinema, a spectralized Southeast Asia is one of the most sought after imaginaries of otherness for the city to compensate for its national ambiguity. 
okay, so maybe the idea is that in some of these early uh, sleazy sorcery films, it was imagining uh, non-Chinese Southeast Asia as as a place kind of like, I don't know, like uh, the, you know, the rural Texas of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Exactly. Like, like yeah, this, I think dangerous, this dangerous other place where there are savage forces afoot. Uh, yeah. But then over time, there is a shift in cinema where those forces are are sort of moved inward and migrated back into the home base. Yeah. Sort of the, the Jason takes Hong Kong movement. Jason takes will. Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, to try uh, you know, looking at how this film is sort of like what role it plays in in the history of Hong Kong horror films, and also what it may reveal, um, according to this this one author anyway about uh, about uh, Hong Kong and its culture and its uh, and how it viewed uh, you know other parts of uh, of of the world as well. Now, one thing that's certainly worth mentioning here is the uh, the monster science parallel between the oily maniac and plenty of creatures in the real world, which do sometimes cover themselves with different types of uh, fluids, oils, lipids, slimes of various kinds in order to actually improve their survival odds. Yeah. And of these creatures, and there are many, uh, the the best example is probably always going to be the hagfish Mm -hmm. of class uh, Mixini and the order uh, Mixiniformis. And this, these are. If, if you haven't seen these, you should look them up because they are they are bizarre. They are they are weird creatures. And you you read the writings, the scientific journal writings of people who study them, and they totally agree. They're like these creatures are weird. <laughs> we still don't understand everything about them. They are strange because they are eel like. Uh, they are jawless. They're marine fish that can produce vast quantities of slime when threatened, and then they can tie themselves in a traveling knot which they use to sort of slip free of their own slime, to sort of wring their own limbless bodies uh, free of the the slimy ooze that they've uh, secreted. I think we should stop for a moment, though, and appreciate just how much slime a hagfish can produce. (laughs) When I've read about this in the past, it was mind-boggling, and I just had to look it up again. Uh, There's a great article by Ed Yong in The Atlantic about hagfish, uh, and I want to read a quote here. He says, quote, Typically, a hagfish will release less than a teaspoon of gunk from the hundred or so slime glands that line its flanks, and in less than half a second, that little amount will expand by 10,000 times, enough to fill a sizable bucket. Reach in, and every move of your hand will drag the water with it. Wow. And then he uh, quotes a researcher named Douglas Fudge of Chapman University who says, It doesn't feel like much at first, as if a spider has built a web underwater. Uh, But then Ed writes, quote, But try to lift your hand out, and it's as if the bucket's contents are now attached to you. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, and yeah, that bucket's worth of content, that's often going to, um, potentially going to be the mouth of the creature, uh, the sea creature that tried to eat it. Uh, so the idea is they just clog up uh, the, the creature that tried to consume them, and then they um, they move away, and then they're, they're, uh, they're free. Um, they're, they're there are some hagfish that, that may use their slime offensively while hunting, apparently, but most hagfish thrive on the bottom of the ocean, feasting on rotten carcasses, and the slime is for when they are agitated by something. Now, there's another parallel, actually, between the hagfish and the oily maniac in that they've got a weird heart, right? That's right. Uh, hagfish are also notable for their quote-unquote zombie hearts 
which can keep beating for 36 hours without any oxygen, allowing them to thrive in deep, oxygen-deprived environments. So, yeah, I can't help but wonder if that is a, a zombie heart we see beating in the oily maniac's chest. Very nice. Okay, well, I guess that does it for the oily maniac. Uh, again, I will say I, I can't really recommend watching the whole movie. I, it is a it is a kind of uh, it is a kind of disturbing and morally bad affair. But you should definitely check out those monster scenes. The monster fights are uh, it's it's the best lipid man kung fu you will ever see. Yeah, I'd love to again. I'd love to see this monster get a better treatment in a, a less sleazy film. I want mm-hmm. I want the film to be greasy but not sleazy. You right? Know? Yeah. I just want um, some good, clean, grease man fun. Yeah, exactly. Just have him wailing on, on, on bad guys the whole time. I have to say, in looking around on Google Scholar for any like academic mention of him, I did run across a, uh, I think it was like a bachelor's degree thesis in game design, hmm. where someone was making the argument, they were like, we need stealth games that feature the oily maniac. <laughs> And um, I didn't read the whole thing, so I don't know how, like, how pervasive that argument is in this, this, this treatment. But they were like, like yeah, he's a, he's like a natural. He's stealthy. He can, you know, he can melt under doors and all. So I don't know. Maybe if that, that potential game designer, like, feels strongly about it uh, enough, we'll eventually see uh, an oily maniac stealth video game. That is a heck of a concept. Tap X to reverse footage. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so where can you see this? If you dare, again, we've given you the the, um, the disclaimers uh, that are necessary, I think. But if you want to watch The Oily Maniac or just skip to the key scenes we mentioned, you can stream this baby on Amazon Prime. You can buy it or rent it digitally other places as well. It's in Mandarin with English subtitles. DVDs and Blu-rays are also available, though I can't make any promises about region and so forth. Uh, I also want to p- point out that when this film came out in uh, Uzbekistan, according to IMDb, the video CD title was Zombie 12, The Insane Oily Freak, <laughs> which we've encountered zombie with mm. other films, generally with Italian films, right, where it's just anything that can remotely be tied into uh, into the zombie franchise, into Dawn of the Dead and so it's forth. It's a sequel to Dawn of the it's Dead. It's a sequel. Yeah. yeah so it's, it sounds like this was even more the case in Uzbekistan, where someone's like, oh, we got another movie. Has it got a monster in it? Zombie 12. <laughs> Only way to see it is in the original Uzbek. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close uh, close the drum on this one. But obviously, we'd love to hear from anybody who has thoughts on this film or its place in Hong Kong cinematic history, uh, etc. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, it publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. So you can find it by looking up the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. We do ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. It's a great way to support the show. And uh, also, uh, I have a uh, personal website. uh, uh, It's uh, samudamusic.com, samudamusic, like in Dune. And uh, I just do some blog posts about these movies as we put them out. So if you're interested, you can find that there. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 